but you need to be open for that and you need to um, when you're in a meeting be attentive show attention to the spaces in between when no one speaks try to be silent as well listen and observe and this has a lot to do with mindset i would say not every japanese company is a very old-fashioned japanese company so there are definitely rules that change from company to company and um, that's why you need to be attentive to find out what are the differences konnichiwa mirasan business success japan no podcast e yokoso hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the business success japan podcast this is your host liddy bukelman my main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan-specific communication skills, especially in business. While I can't and won't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Before getting into today's episode, I want to take a quick second to thank those who have already subscribed, rated, and left reviews for the podcast. It goes a long way to helping those who need the resource find it. And as an independent creator, I'm always moved and encouraged by the support. If you would like to help the podcast grow, please go ahead and share your favorite episode with someone you think could benefit. And go ahead and leave a rating and review if you haven't already had the chance. Thank you so much in advance. Today, I chat with Johannes Butkiewicz, founder of the company Nihon with two H's, whose mission is to bridge Hamburg and Japan by supporting German and Japanese companies and organizations in their international projects. He shares a bit more detail about his work in the interview, so be sure to keep listening to learn more about that. But before we get into the interview, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned a very important phrase for working and living in Japan. Ganbatte kurasai. Ga, n, ba, te. Again, this phrase literally means please work hard, but it's usually more of an equivalent to when we would say something like good luck in English. Today, I want to point out a word that we briefly discuss in today's conversation. Sakuru. 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 Sakuru are essentially school clubs. Technically, there are two words for clubs at school, with sakuru having a more informal connotation, while the other word, bukatsu or bukatsudo, usually referred to more formal, direct school sponsored activities such as official tennis teams and things like that. However, both are an essential part of the Japanese education system, as it allows students to build rapport and socialize with other students. While this may seem unrelated to doing business in Japan, this concept has strong connections with Japanese corporate culture that we'll touch on during the episode. So, without any further delay, let's get into my conversation with Johannes. Could you please quickly introduce yourself to my audience? Of course. Um, my name is Johannes Budkiewicz. I work as a consultant and translator for German and Japanese organizations who are looking to well, interact with the respective other market, and I'm based in Hamburg, Germany. Yeah, so how did you get involved with Japan then? 
Well, I think it started out like it does for many people who get involved with Japan, with Japanese pop culture. Mm. So when I was in my childhood, I was so exposed to well Japanese manga and anime. And well, back at the time, I did not have much of a clue that those are from Japan and what actually, but what the background is upon which these stories are actually crafted. But when I grew up, year by year, I well, I got a feeling that there's something, some background where all those stories and interesting pictures and characters come from. And I um, got more interested in the well, cultural background, like what's the history of those places that are shown? Um, what is the significance of certain phrases and actions that are actually, well, have taken place in the stories that I'm reading and viewing? And so I was interested enough to find a pen pal at that time from Shimonoseki and had the great opportunity to get introduced to someone from the country to actually, well, show me the ropes on a very far away scale um, in, well, back at the time it was still letters. And from that on, the, well, my interest in Japan only grew. You definitely hear that a lot, that there's some yeah. small thing that somebody gets interested in and then it just kind of blossoms from there. <laughs> yeah, and very often it is some kind of pop culture because, well, back in the 90s when I grew up, Japanese pop culture was everywhere and I think also in the 80s already. And I think this, well, just continues on and um, I'm currently working on a project with a former classmate of mine who is a school teacher now and um, we're having an exchange project going on between his school and a school in uh, Hyogo Prefecture. And also in his class, there's all these students who are into Japanese pop culture. So it's a, an ongoing trend. Um, and I think that's something that is a very great resource to actually have in mind and work with when bringing, well, relations to Japan forward. Yeah, for sure because you probably are well you're definitely aware of how difficult it is to study japanese so having <laughs> having an interest in the culture is definitely something that you need if you want to progress in any meaningful sense definitely definitely so can you dig into a little bit more about what you are doing now yes so um, at the beginning of last year 2019 i started my own business um and I named it Nihon, trying to be very clever with the name. Um, so, um, well, the typical Nihon is spelled N-I-H-O-N. And the short for Hamburg, which is a Hansestadt Hamburg, the long term is the double H. So um, I tried to put Hamburg into Japan. And that's basically the idea of my business as well, I'm trying to help organizations and businesses from Hamburg to um, interact with the Japanese market or take first steps there or gather information from the Japanese market. So what I provide is first market research or well if it's not market research topical research if needed as well as translation services, then also delegation coordination and support, although that is mostly from the Japanese side actually, so companies or organizations from Japan who want to come to Germany um, to visit partners or um, do well interviews with certain institutions come here and I well plan their 
schedule for them. Um, look for accommodation, look for interview partners, try to um, gather as much information for them as possible so they have a very smooth time while they're in Hamburg or Germany. And last but not least is um, my consultation part where I try to well tell mostly Japanese um, companies currently but also looking for German companies what they need to look out for um, when they interact with Japanese partners or German partners in the other direction. Um, so mostly it's about teaching um, some kind of cultural background. What are the difficult or differences in corporate culture in both countries? Um, what needs to be looked after? What are differences in decision making? What are differences in how meetings are um, upheld and so on? So it's kind of a wild bunch of things that I do, but um, I actually like this uh, generalist approach where I can tackle problems or help clients from various angles if they have uh, some problem. Because most of the time problems are not that singular, but are related to a lot of um, things surrounding them, especially in an uh, intercultural context between both countries. Did you kind of find that people were hungry already for that sort of service or did you have to do quite a bit of convincing and education to tell companies that this is really important? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Um, there's two answers to this. On the Japanese side, my impression was there was actually demand for these services, um, especially because I have the feeling that more Japanese companies are currently willing to look into the German market than German companies are currently looking into the Japanese market. But that also has to do, I would say, with um, at least in this year, the COVID-19 situation where um, at least Germany currently is a lot more um, affected by the current, um, well, numbers of infected people and so on. So we have a second lockdown in Germany currently going on and Japan did not have, well, that much of a lockdown time. And I think the Japanese economy is not as much troubled as the German one is currently. So I think there's a lot more looking to the domestic market in Germany than there is in Japan, at least at the time being. So to come back to the start, um, Currently, I would say in Japan, there was more demand for the services I offer. And here in Hamburg, there's a lot of, well, convincing that I have to do, which is actually why I'm currently partnering up with a few um, other um, freelancers and entrepreneurs in Hamburg to start something new, to start our own, well, German-Japanese business network in the city, which is currently missing. And I think it um, actually is a very good thing to have because Hamburg is the city in Germany with, I think, the fourth or fifth largest number of Japanese corporations, and I think the third largest number of Japanese living here. So there is a lot of possible connection points, but those are not really visible in the city. So of course you have a few Japanese restaurants that you can see and go to, but you see very little of the Japanese business and corporations that are active here. And you see very little programs offered by the city of Hamburg to actually interact with these companies or to interact with the Japanese market 
And I think that's a shame because Hamburg actually had a very prominent position as the entry gate to Germany in the, well, two decades after the Second World War. And after that, companies gradually moved to, well, the southern area, the area around Dusseldorf in Western Germany is the main center for Japanese corporations. And if Japanese corporations want to have connections to the German automotive industry, they go to Southern Germany. But there's currently not much incentive to go to Hamburg. And I would like to change that because there is a lot of potential, I would say. It's interesting that the um, openness to this sort of education and assistance is so different depending on the country. For sure. Yeah, at least that's my experience so far. So it might be, it might also have something to do with Hamburg not being as prominent in the Japan market currently. So if there were more Japanese companies here in the city, um, that might be, well, or if those were more visible, it might be a different situation, but currently they are not. And so um, companies in Hamburg maybe don't see much of a need to actually um, interact with Japanese companies or interact with the Japanese market, which makes them think, okay, we actually also do not need service of someone who is able to help us with that connection. Right. So um, maybe this is a case of needing to build the market first. So. Yes, well, I'm glad that you're here to help people kind of see those new opportunities for them. Because you mentioned that there are a lot of unique things about Japan and Germany that in both ways that make it difficult to work together, but also ways that make them uniquely suited to work well together. And you mentioned something that you're passionate about is the education sector specifically. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, are there any unique aspects of the Japanese education system? that you're interested in and how it compares to Germany? Well, to answer that question, let me go back a few years. Um, back then I worked for the international um, NGO Youth for Understanding, who are very active in doing international student exchange programs. So uh, high school students um, spend one year or half a year in a different country in a host family and go to a school there. and. When I worked there, I was also responsible for the student exchange to Japan um, from Germany. And Japan was always the country that students from Germany had the most difficulties adjusting to. Um, and I think that's down to several reasons. First of all, students in Germany are high school students or even middle school or elementary school in a way are raised to be very independent in the way they well, do their schoolwork, but also um, how they decide what they want to do in their free time. So basically when you get out of school in the afternoon, you decide what you want to do, if you want to meet your friends or if you want to do some sports activities, cultural activity, um, well, you choose. Um, and this is something that is very difficult for German students to adjust to when they go to Japan. Because as you definitely know, there's the well club system, the circle system, and of course, of course, there's cram school as well. So um, the Japanese educational system has a very strictly 
scheduled, well, routine for every student that lasts from the early morning until the evening usually, and leaves very little room for individual decisions on what to do. And this is something that is a very difficult for German students to adjust to, because it's so difficult from what they, different from what they know. And this is kind of the first challenge they have to accept when going to Japan. You do not decide the way you structure your day anymore. So you follow the structure that is given to you by your school. You have the choice of what kind of club or circle you want to go to. But um, once you're in, you're in and you follow that circle's um, schedule and structure as well. And once you accept that, that's the first step to get actually into the Japanese school system to get to know people, to actually build friendships and relationships and to well cater to your own emotional needs that you have during your time abroad because you're in a very different spot and you're far away from um, all those people that you usually connect with and that show you empathy. And that's why you need to get into this, but it's a very different thing from Germany. So as a first thing. Then of course you have the emphasis in Japan on basically getting into the next stage of education. So it's not about finishing one and earning very good grades while doing so. Of course you want to earn good grades, but it's the degree that you take out of school is not as relevant most of the time as the entry exam to the next stage of your education. And this is quite different from Germany where, well, the grades you leave one school with are what you need when you proceed. Well, it's the same in the US as far as I know. And I think with most European countries as well. So this is something that is, well, not relevant for German students when they go to Japan because, um, well, that's just a year abroad and they take some grades back home and they get if they're lucky, they get translated for a German school if they accept that. But I think it's a very different emphasis on what is important in school life. And well, then there's the university part. Um, and I think that's the first time from my experience where Japanese students actually experience some kind of freedom in what they can do. And this is so different for them. So basically in university in Germany, you decide what you want to study because you have a passion for that kind of subject. Well, of course, you can slack along and probably finish uh, somehow and get through. But of course, if you want to, if you have a passion for the subject you study and you want to work with that in the future, get a job in that area, you, well, you give it your all and uh, try to get very good grades and get out of that and finish this. But um, in Japan, from my experience, students are not really where they choose, can choose any subject because afterwards when they want to go look for a job, in most cases, it's not that relevant what they actually studied. What is relevant is that they finished their university time and that they have a university degree to get into the job market. But most of the time, if they're not having a very technical job like engineering or uh, uh, natural sciences where they need a very specific knowledge to do the work they do later, it doesn't matter that much what they studied, if they did social sciences or cultural sciences. Um, it's mostly on the job training in Japan and um, students are not really encouraged to give their 
well, studies, well, all of their energy. So they have the freedom to enjoy that time in a different way than they had during their high school or middle school or elementary school years. And that's a very interesting experience. And for most Japanese students, that's also the first time they have the chance to go abroad and meet with people from other cultures, speak other languages. Um, and I think that's kind of late in the education process to actually make that kind of experience and to get that exposure to things that are different from the cultural um, background that you live in for all your life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the third point that I wanted to make. That was a long monologue. <laughs> no, it was useful though because I was lucky enough to be able to study abroad in Japan mm -hmm. during college. And it was uh -huh. such a huge contrast between what the people who were studying abroad in Japan were doing mm -hmm. and what the actual Japanese students were doing. Mm -hmm. Because for the most part, unless you were in a hard science or I guess accounting and law are other ones that you have to mm -hmm. be curious about in your studies, everybody else was mostly just go to class, do most of your homework, do most of what's expected, but the rest mm -hmm. of the time was mostly in the clubs, the sakuru, and then also part-time jobs to fund your travels. Yes, of course, yeah. Yeah, so it was just a very different situation from the uh, people who were studying abroad and doing everything that they possibly could to study. <laughs> so. I mean, it's not like every student in Europe would be or is a very, very engaged scholar and spending all of their time studying. Oh, I mean, that's not true as well, but still it felt very different being a student abroad and seeing the Japanese students doing their studies. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. Yeah, definitely a different emphasis. Yes. And we were super jealous too. <laughs> yes, of course, <laughs> that's true. But knowing what was leading up to that, all the hard work that was leading up to that and knowing the work culture post-college uh, a lot of the students kind of, a lot of the Japanese students I spoke with kind of described it as their one chance to kind of have fun for a few years before they both yes. again. That's definitely true. And um, I do not begrudge them that. They definitely need that time every person does. And it's sometimes kind of heartbreaking to see that they only have those few years for this kind of freedom that they're looking for, um, that everyone is looking for in a way. But in a way, that's the way it is currently in Japan. If you still adhere to the very strict societal rules that are still active in Japan, yes. So then are there any benefits that you see about the sort of system that Japanese schools tend to have? Well, it depends. I mean, I'm, of course, I have a background where that is not seen as being very beneficial. So, um, from my point of view, I do not see a lot of benefits, but of course, if you look at it from the view of those people that are actually structuring the way Japanese society works, and that is mostly, well, older people above their 50s, mostly men, of course, for them, it's very, it's a beneficial system to keep up um, because it makes it very difficult for students um, to actually move in a direction that uh, would possibly change things too much 
that mood could make you uncomfortable. So um, I think the way school is structured in Japan is a very effective way to keep things the way they are. And of course, this has benefits for people who like things the way they are. It's not the way I would like them to be, but it does have its benefits in that direction, definitely. And of course, you can say um, Japanese education system has a large part to play in why Japanese people are considered to be very polite and respectful. Of course, those are benefits that are linked to the way the school system works. I would definitely agree with that. But I would like it to be so that there were values like freedom of expression and speech that would be more, ex more encouraged by um, the education system. That's definitely one thing that I would like to see more. Yeah, I definitely agree that it makes sense in the context of Japanese culture to have things be very regimented and structured because that's yeah. likely what you'll encounter when you graduate from college yeah. and enter into the workforce. Because instead of sakura, you have momikai and other yes. things you have to do and long hours with overtime work. So mm -hmm. the same way school kind of consumed your life as a child, your workplace traditionally will consume your life post-graduation as well. So. Yes, definitely. So uh, do you see any opportunities for disruption in the Japanese education system? It could be something that you're seeing right now, some inspiration you see from your own country or just some ideas you have yourself? Well, I think if we look at the global environmental movement that is currently being very much upheld by the Fridays for Future movement that is mostly based on school children, students actually um, getting active and being very proactive about voicing their opinion and voicing what they need and going in direct opposition to school because they will go on strike on Fridays. This is something that can have an influence on the way schools teach and interact with their students. I'm sure of it. For instance, here in Germany, this did not lead to the way to a big change in the way the school system works. I mean, that's the school system in Germany is structured in a way that makes it very difficult to do any actual big changes. But it did definitely influence the way teachers and students interacted, and it did help to bring this topic into the classrooms and into schools. And I think that is something on that level that would be possible in Japan as well. The caveat being that currently the environmental movement in Japan is not very much based on students and the little numbers of Friday for Future students that Japan has are not very influential currently. I mean, when Germany gathers or gathered about 1 million students going on the streets uh, last year in September, Japan had about a few thousand. Um, so there's still a very large gap on the mobilization potential um, in both countries. But I think if any change is to come forward, I think the only way this can realistically happen is from the student side actually, because they have the biggest interest in things changing, maybe supported by a teacher's uh, 
well, movement, but the teachers, what is it, labor group is also not very influential currently. So I think it is basically on the shoulders of the students actually to um, push for changes as difficult as that is. Yeah, especially if everything is kind of structured to try to keep yeah. people doing more or less the same thing in the same way. Yes. That'll yes. be interesting to see how that develops and maybe what sort of thing ends up being the impetus for things to change. That'll mm -hmm. be yes. I mean, one other option that might have some kind of small scale influence is the growing startup scene. And I think the startup scene has a high demand for students or professionals who um, think differently and who do not want to um, work in the regular Japanese um, Kaisha system anymore. So if the need from those young agile companies is big enough for people that think differently, then maybe this can have an influence on at least parts of the curriculum. So that's another angle that I think has a potential to have some small measure of influence on the school system. But I don't think this is something that's going to change very fast in any way. It's interesting that you mentioned the startup scene because something I just recently heard about, I haven't really had the chance to look into it properly, but I think it's an organization called Waffle that focuses mm -hmm. on introducing like skills to learn technology and technology skills mm -hmm. to women, to young girls in Japan especially, because it's still pretty common for schools to disencourage women from studying technology at all. They're kind of mm -hmm. supposed to go into the humanities because you're supposed yeah. to be in a supporting role rather than a technical role. So I wonder, optimistically, I wonder if kind of that grassroots movement for focusing on maybe women in particular could be a way that things could move forward in the future. That'll be interesting to see. It's definitely interesting and I would also hope that this is some positive influence in the way the Japanese school, school system can develop because there is a sore need for women in well technical jobs as well as women in influential positions as well. There's so little Japanese women in politics, for example. Um, it is kind of embarrassing to see most of the time the way um, the parliaments are structured and how other political positions are um, always held by men in Japan. Mm -hmm. I think, well, of course, we have the Governor Koike from Tokyo, who is a kind of a singular example of things being potentially different, but, well, she's one among a sea of men surrounding her. So um, there's still a lot of need for change to get more well, women into politics and into influential positions in the Japanese economy as well. It's great to have examples, but it's not great when they're the exception to the rule. There's still a lot yes, of they, There need to be more examples, definitely. Yeah, for sure. So then moving a little bit into the sustainability sector, you told me yes, before that it's another area that you're really interested in and mm -hmm. particularly in how Japan and Germany kind of have different focuses in the sustainability sector that could be very mm -hmm. complementary. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about that? Yes, definitely. So I, where to start? Kind of a big topic. I think, yes, it definitely is. Let's start with the Paris Agreement. I think that's always a good starting point these days, where 
well, basically all countries agree to um, move forward and become carbon neutral as fast as possible to keep global warming below two degrees and if possible even further, like 1.7 or whatever. That's not very strictly written down. Uh, but Germany and Japan are two countries that have a relatively to their population, very large footprint on global emissions, as both being very heavily industry, industry well, having a lot of industries, um, thus well, producing a lot of carbon dioxide and other gases that are damaging the um, well, climate on Earth. And what I see in Germany is that despite signing this agreement, there's still not enough traction in actually keeping faith with the agreements that were made at the time and not implementing the measures that are, would be necessary to um, actually achieve those goals. And I think it's the same with a lot of industry, industrial nations um, currently. So um, yes, we all agreed on paper that this is necessary, but when it comes to actually making the changes in the domestic market, very little happens. And if something happens, it happens at a very slow and gradual scale. But I think what we see in Germany and especially in Europe is that the pressure on governments is rising to actually um, move forward with their decisions. And I think this is actually well, quite beneficial and gives us the chance to improve the laws that are needed to actually um, well bring the change about that we need. For example, we have the, the new European Commission has agreed on the new Green Deal and currently all the different countries in the European Union are trying to well negotiate in what areas we need to improve or what we need to improve upon. And Germany has so far been one of the countries that is very reluctant in actually forcing those changes. And the latest example would be the well, reformation of the um, agricultural law in the European Union, and which would continue the status quo, which is uh, most of the subsidies of the European Union that go to the agricultural sector, go to larger companies, which do not necessarily have to work in a sustainable way. And um, this has a lot to do with currently um, the Conservative Party in Germany being the larger part of the government. And what we also see is a lot of pressure now from the European Commission in actually saying, no, this is not the way we can do this. We want to have changes. So the pressure from the European Union on nations like Germany who have, uh, or have in the past been reluctant to bring changes about, well, they have, well, we now have the pressure to actually do changes. So I think this is something that might help in the future. Um, but getting back to Germany and Japan, what I wanted to get to is one of those pressure points has led to Germany finally agreeing on law to abolish coal as an energy form last year. And while there's a lot of discussion is if, about the way the law is structured and if it 
is not actually a law that will in effect prolong the time that we uh, well, generate energy from coal in Germany. That's a different topic, but the pressure from the European Union and from civil society movements has led to an agreement to abolish coal energy by 2038, which is very far in the future. But so what we see is there is a lot of interaction going on for the German government that they have to deal with. And there is potential to put pressure on the government to move forward with sustainability um, policies and um, environmental uh, friendly policies, be it either from non-governmental organizations, um, be it from civil society movements like Friday for Future, but also being from the European Union. And this is something that we do not see very much in Japan, because Japan is not part of a collective of nations like Germany is. So they do not have to follow the rules that govern that collective like the EU. So there's, well, a lack of potential to actually put pressure on the Japanese government to um, change things to be more environmental friendly. So it always has to come from within in a way. And if we look at civil society movements and NGOs in Japan, um, those are most of the time not active on a nationwide scale. So um, when we look at civil society movements in Japan, they are mostly either local or regional movements that do not gather traction to um, be active on a national level. And this makes it or has made it at least very easy for the Japanese government to um, sidestep those movements or um, ignore them completely. So what I wanted to get into is when we look at the, get back to the Paris goals, um, those from Japan are less ambitious than those that we see from Germany, for example. For example. So Germany wants to be carbon neutral by 2050, which for my opinion is still too late. But still, let's say we have 2050. Japan has, as far as I remember, agreed to be 80% carbon neutral by 2050. Um, so there's always a bit of a lag behind for the Japanese goals that they are looking for when it comes to um, sustainability and achieving those goals they actually um, signed they want to achieve. Um, and I think another, well, wait, maybe this is a very long monologue. Maybe we want to hook into this for a moment. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I guess it culturally kind of makes sense that Japan might be a little bit more hesitant to tie themselves down to such ambitious goals because we don't know what's gonna happen in the future. So making those kind of promises that far out into the future is pretty intimidating if we don't have a clear path of how to get there. But what are some movements technologically that you see in Germany yes. and Japan and how are they different? Definitely, that's the next point I wanted to make. Um, so if we look at the energy sector, um, so Germany has decided to abolish nuclear energy, I think by next year. Um, and the decision was made after the Fukushima Daiichi um, catastrophe in 2011. And this has led to 
the renewable energies um, filling up a larger part of the German um, energy supply. So currently we are at roughly one third of the German energy supply is supplied by renewable energies. And um, during the summertime, we can even go up to uh, 40%. Um, most of that is made up by wind energy. And most of those are based um, on the northern part of Germany, close to the coastline. But we also have wind parks spread all over the country. So when we look at renewables, Germany has a lot of expertise when it comes to wind energy, especially an offshore wind energy. And this is something that Japan, well, Japan could also employ because they have a very long coastline, as we all know. And there's a lot of potential in um, building large offshore wind parks in Japan to um, meet the energy demand that Japan has. And another point would be, that's going in the other direction, would be when we look at electric mobility. So historically, both countries had a very strong automotive sector and German companies have for a long time focused on upholding automobiles that need fuel or diesel or some kind of hybrid solution. And I think Japan was faster in trying out new technologies in this area, for example, electric, electric cars as well as hydrogen fuel. And now that Germany is also employing new strategies to, well, move forward with its own hydrogen strategy and also um, bringing more electric cars into the market. This is something that Japan can share a lot of expertise on as well as supply actual parts that are needed that are already produced in Japan. So um, I just read an article about um, Panasonic who are doing all kinds of stuff. Usually we know Panasonic because um, we have, a, well, maybe a Panasonic TV or some kind of um, acoustic device, but they build all kinds of technical devices and also small components that are built into other devices and they have the technology to um, supply a lot of German car manufacturers with parts that they would need to go more um, into the electric car segment. So that's a lot of um, potential to um, cooperate. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot there, but do you know why these companies maybe aren't already closely aligned in terms of production and working together and collaborating? Uh, to be honest, I think all of the bigger companies are already at least talking with each other about these things. Um, I mean, this is, I think it's very symptomatic of the way the German-Japanese business sector is working. Um, you usually do not see or hear anything about it. Um, so, well, of course, you know, well, there might be some Japanese corporations working in Germany, and of course, I can buy Japanese products everywhere. Um, but little to no one um, knows how much Japanese components, for example, are built into products that are manufactured in Germany, for example. Very few people know how many Japanese companies are 
in Germany, I think it's about 1,800. Um, very few people know how many Japanese people live in Germany, actually, apart from, uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, seeing some kind of Japanese restaurants uh, in the street. And now, since a few years, being able to eat ramen. But the German-Japanese business is close to invisible when you move below the level of the very large corporations, I would say. And I think that shapes the image of um, how much business is actually going on between both countries for most people. So most people do not know how much business relations we have. And I think this, yeah, this leads to the image that there is not that much cooperation going on while there is at least on the level of larger corporations and on governmental the governmental level that is looking towards the economy there is a lot of cooperation going on but when you look at medium or small sized companies it's you do not know those companies usually so you do not know how they interact with each other so this is actually something that um, I'm actually looking into. So I want to work with those small and medium-sized companies, with those startups that you usually do not see um, and that are usually not as well connected as those very big players, those global companies that actually have all those connections and they have all, the, all those well, experts that they need and they have the expertise most of the time. But below those very big companies, there is a lot of invisibleness uh, or invisibility and a lot of need for well some intercultural connectors to make them actually visible and help them work together. Yeah, it can be really hard for people to think about opportunities that are just, yeah, like you said, they're just invisible. So it'll yeah. only be more important for people like you to do the work to tell people what they can do and how they can be in mutually productive relationships with each other that they may not have thought of yeah. even thought of doing in the past. It's definitely what I'm trying to do. I mean, there's examples of Japanese companies who are trying to do their sales work by dropping catalogs into the mail of other companies. That's not working anymore these days. It's, that's not a German thing. That's a thing that's probably not working in any country anymore outside of Japan, probably. So this is some lesson that you need to, well, teach them or help them understand and show them different options how to do these things to actually be more productive, get in touch with other potential um, companies to collaborate on new projects. So then other than dropping off those massive catalogs to companies, are there any other cultural differences in companies between Germany and Japan that you see? Well, of course, we have, I think, one thing that is often very difficult for um, German companies to understand is the way the decision-making pro process in Japan works. So in Japan, we have the, the Mawashi process. So everyone who is somehow involved in the project has to kind of be involved in the decision-making. And if it's just um, showing them the document and asking for their opinion, and then they're saying, yes, everything's fine, but you have to involve everyone. So um, decisions take a very long time in Japan. And when you look at it from a German perspective where decisions are usually made by whoever is supposed to be the leader, and those leaders can make the decisions on a whim once they have the necessary information, this is very 
difficult because you sometimes feel like, what is my Japanese partner actually doing? I, um, I gave them all the information. I gave them what the decision I made, what we should do. How can this process now take three, four, five weeks without us hearing anything? And this is very, yeah, it can be very frustrating. Something that as a, well, German employee or a German manager who is working with Japanese um, clients or partners, um, well, you have to get used to, you cannot change this, uh, or you have to get used to it. The same line when you look at the way meetings work in both cultures. So in Germany, meetings are the places to make decisions. In Japan, they are not. They are to um, affirm decisions that have been made beforehand. And so a lot of those small things that or one has to get used to and has to be aware of to not well lead to further frustrations that could finally end in well, a business deal not taking place or some kind of other project failing because um, one partner withdraws from it. So there's a lot of potential for, um, well, not disaster, but missteps that can, uh, in the end, lead to um, well, disappointment in the uh, working together between Germany and Japan. Yeah, there's a lot of education to be done around the, what to expect from the other party culturally. Definitely, yes. yes. <laughs> It does not pay off to just think that you'll learn it as you go. You really need to be aware of it ahead of time if you want to find success in the country. Definitely. Um, I mean, there's still a lot to be said about going into um, these things with a very open mind and being very attentive and being, well, showing attention to detail, being patient. Um, so, well, you can educate someone as much as possible, but so it's still something that has to do with mindset as well. Even if you know all those, all those things, if you do not agree with them, or if you feel like that's the way they do it, we'll let them do it, I do it my way, this will lead to frustrations in the end. So it should be more of a, we're in this together. So um, we take this part the way you do those processes. And I know about those and so I can adjust my processes a bit as well to make the connection go a lot smoother. So for example, if you go into a meeting with Japanese um, clients or partners, you try to seek some kind of pre-alignment, um, make the decisions beforehand. So um, when you're in the meeting, it's only about confirmation with them, um, confirming all those points, going through all of them again. So everyone is on the same page when after the meeting, the actual work and decision-making process continues. But you need to be open for that. And you need to, um, when you're in a meeting, be attentive, show attention to the spaces in between when no one speaks, try to be silent as well, listen and observe. And this has a lot to do with mindset, I would say. And also because you're dealing with individuals, there's variety yes. within the culture. It's not like every Japanese person you meet is the embodiment Definitely. of yes. Japanese culture. And then the other complicating factor is what you mentioned before about startups. The culture within startups can be quite a bit different than the yes. culture within <laughs> Japanese companies. So it's good to learn about corporate Japanese culture yep. for sure, but you also need to be aware that it not everything's going to align with what you're going to expect. No yes, yes. <laughs> Not every Japanese company is a very old fashioned Japanese company. So there are definitely rules that change from company to company. And um, 
That's why you need to be attentive to find out what are the differences. Are there any other common difficulties you see foreigners face when they go to Japan? Or is it mostly just kind of those, the slowness of communication, what you mentioned with the pauses, the ma? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's, of course, some points that go beyond um, corporate culture. Of course, mm -hmm. there's language. And when you want to work in Japan, you definitely need to invest time to learn Japanese. I'm one of those people who would say you do not need to have an uh, JLPT of N1 to work with Japanese or in a Japanese company, but you need to be able to express your thoughts and to understand those that your partners well, try to express. And you need to show sincere effort that you're working on your Japanese, even though it's not perfect, but you need to show that you're working on it and you need to be willing to use it, even if it's not perfect, because that goes a very long way to um, gain appreciation for your effort. And I think another thing is that a lot of people give up too early when they want to do business with Japan. Um, this is the same like with the language thing I mentioned, but showing effort and staying around even if things do not go through, it's something that is also still regarded as a good trait in Japan. So um, you see a lot of people like stopping after one year when they um, find it difficult to find clients and partners in Japan. But if they stick around longer, maybe two years, three years, those same clients will notice, oh, you're still around and you're still writing emails to me. Well, Maybe you have what it takes to actually work on the next project I'm looking forward to. So patience and endurance go a long way when working in Japan or with Japanese partners. And as difficult as it is to make those relationships, yeah. the fact that they take longer to create, on the flip side of that, they tend to last longer too. That is definitely true. So once you have built up this kind of um, respect for each other or gain the respect from your uh, Japanese partner. If you do not make a very, very massive blunder, you will usually keep that respect for quite a while. That is true. So then if you think they should do anything even, what are some things that Japan should probably do to be more accommodating for foreigners who want to live and work in Japan? But I think there's a few things, some are more technical, some are more general. Um, for those foreigners who would like to work in a Japanese company, for example, it would be very beneficial if the typical Japanese employment circle would be more open to not always happen at the same time of the year. And, uh, well, February, March, and April, when everyone does their shukatsu and um, does their employment tests and goes to company interviews and so on. And after that, it's basically one year of no, well, very few of the bigger companies are hiring new recruits, uh, which most of the time does not align with the times that, well, students from um, universities in Germany or other um, countries in Europe um, finish their university time. So there's always a gap um, happening. Um, so if the options to apply for uh, jobs in Japan would be a bit more flexible, that would be the technical point that would be helpful. And on the other side, I think from a societal point, there could be some improvements in the way foreigners are seen in the country. Um, so 
I think being a German, I have a I have the benefit of probably coming from a country that is one, if not the country that has the highest regards uh, when it comes to foreign countries from a Japanese perspective. So as a German in Japan, I well, enjoy a lot of respect from the get-go um, and have a lot less to work to achieve that. But looking at other countries or other foreigners working in Japan, it's not as easy. And the same thing goes for other countries as well. So if you come to Germany and you come from the Middle East, you are going to have a difficult time and a lot of times because there are structural difficulties to make it difficult for you to integrate into the society, to find a place to live in, to work it, and to um, well get your kids to school and so on. And I think those barriers are even higher in Japan. So it's more difficult to obtain a visa in Japan. I think it's more difficult to um, well, find accommodation. And the experience I hear from other friends who are foreigners in Japan is that they often have experience of not being treated equally or if some kind of stressful situations arise they are very quickly put in the category of, well, you're a foreigner, you do not understand, no matter what the difficulty actually was. And I think that's something that cannot change overnight, but I think um, the view of foreigners and the acceptance of foreigners in Japan is something that should be looked at and needs to work at. And I think that goes back to education as well and to exposure of um, foreign culture and language in general. So if you do not have a lot of exposure, you yourself also do not have much of an understanding or a will to accommodate other cultures and languages and people um, into your life or country. Yeah, I know that's one of the yeah. main goals of the JET program, sending teachers yeah. over to schools all over Japan. But yeah, yeah. It's hard to quantify what the impact is, but hopefully that helps long-term, exposing kids as soon as possible to people from other countries. Definitely, that's a good thing, I would say, yeah. But also, I think it's difficult for Japan because Japan is quite far away from so many countries and um, Germany is surrounded by eight countries um, and the center of Europe, So, but stuff like school exchanges and so on. And sending students abroad for a while or similar things those would definitely help to spread intercultural knowledge and intercultural competencies um, within the populace over a long time of course but it would help but yeah this doesn't happen overnight and the situation for japan is difficult in this regard especially since some of their neighbors and japan are not on best terms yeah, <laughs> we'll just leave that one there. Yeah. But, <laughs> but especially with the education system, because everybody's just working as hard as they can to get to the next yeah. level, to get to the best school, studying abroad is really hard to work into that. Yes. Because everybody needs to strive for the best score so they can get to the best mm -hmm. school. Whereas studying abroad for a year in terms of education in the holistic sense is yeah. undoubtedly an amazing use of time it doesn't make sense when you want to get as high of a score on a standardized test as possible, so. Yes, that's a problem. But on the other hand, 
as we said earlier, what is mostly relevant in Japan are the entry exams. So for those, you do not necessarily have to have the best grades in school previously. Of course, you need those to apply for the tests, but still there's some kind of leeway there. And um, the real decision, if you can make it into the next better high school or the next better university is made by those tests. Um, so I would actually think that from that perspective, there might even be more potential to find space for a year abroad or half a year abroad than looking at the um, German perspective where every grade once, uh, or basically every grade counts up to your final degree. Um, so it's more difficult to actually uh, place it into those time, those years that you spend in school. I think I would have to look deeper into this to actually make this a qualified statement, but I feel like there should be some kind of potential the way grades are actually viewed in, or seen in Japan. Yeah, let's hope they can make that happen in the future. Yeah, we hope so. So then, do you have any personal examples of a communication breakdown in Japan that you see as being due to cultural differences? Luckily, I don't. I actually never really experienced a cultural breakdown happening before my eyes, um, either with me involved or someone else involved. So I'm very happy about this. So I can only share other parties' experiences, um, but um, those are not mine. I'm glad that you haven't had anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm very glad about that as well. So because those stories I hear are very, very um, hard to swallow sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're just silly, but sometimes yeah. can get very almost traumatic for people. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, so far I was very lucky with that, I think. So then if you were chatting with somebody who wanted to go to Japan for business, either to live or work, maybe just for a business trip even, but you only had one thing that you could teach them, they only had time to learn something, uh, what would you teach them? Well, I think it's the same thing I said earlier. Be open, be attentive, be not too straightforward, be able to hold back and let things develop in a Japanese way. So if you're only there one time, then best be there and observe and try to understand how things work, actually. I think if there's only one thing I can teach, that's the most valuable thing. Everything else is just one piece of a large puzzle, but this is the view you have to have to actually be able to um, understand the puzzle. Yeah, I think you're right. That's the most all-purpose piece of advice you can yeah. give people. I easy. think it works for any culture, but I think it's especially important uh, in Japan because the differences can be very big sometimes, even if, they're, if you don't expect them to be. Mm. And you, especially if you're very straightforward and you're very proactive in um, how you deal with people usually, especially in the business sense, you might not even notice how many well rules you actually break by doing that. And um, in the end, everyone might, might well, not politely to you and um, you're out of the meeting and you think that it went pretty well, but you never hear from anyone again. Pay attention. Paying attention is... Yeah. Always Japan yeah. or any other country or anywhere in life, to be honest. Yeah. So. Paying attention and being able to hold back, I think. Yes. 
Well, thank you so much. Is there any other thought or topic you wanted to chat about before we head off for today? I think this covers everything that I had in mind, actually. I think I was able to put everything that I thought of beforehand into my small monologues that I held throughout our interview. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated learning from you. And I know that everybody else listening will be able to learn a lot too. So I'm very grateful. Well, no, thank you for having me, actually. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing it, actually. Perfect. Well, you'll get to hear it soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Johannes and be sure to follow him on LinkedIn to continue learning even more about his work connecting Japan and Germany. Please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. Go ahead and share this episode if you enjoyed it and feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you'd like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. But for now, just remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.